And with fascinating architecture, visitors flock to photograph the city's unique skyline. It's most well-known for the number of breweries that call the city home, earning it the nickname of Brew City and the home of the Milwaukee Brewers. And in 1990, it's where 27-year-old Steve Lohman was working at the Wisconsin Conservation Corps as a supervisor. The Conservation Corps was a volunteer work program that provided free job training and then attempted to place the unemployed into jobs. Steve Lohman had recently moved into a supervisor role after another supervisor, Edward Patz, was fired. On June 1, 1990, he was working alongside John Fian at the Office of the Conservation Corps. It was a routine day at the office. That was until 20-year-old Christopher Scarver walked through the doors. Before we get into what happened that June 1st day, we'll need to backtrack just a little bit. According to Deseret News, Christopher Scarver had completed job training at the Wisconsin Conservation Corps work program after he failed to complete high school. He had trained under the previous supervisor, Edward Patz, in the carpentry program. According to Scarver, Patz had led him to believe that after he completed that program, he would be employed full-time as a carpenter. But Pats was fired before that plan came to fruition. With Pats gone, Scarver directed all of his anger towards site manager John Fian. Roughly six months passed, and Christopher Scarver's life continued to unravel. He didn't get the job, and the pressure was turned up a few notches when he found out his girlfriend was pregnant. He had been living with his mother, but she had recently kicked him out. Under the pressure, he began to use alcohol and drugs more heavily. On June 1, 1990, he went down to the Conservation Corps Center to confront the man he felt had done him wrong, armed with a loaded handgun and a butcher knife. Steve Lohman and John Fian were at the center working when Scarver burst through the door demanding money. According to the New York Times, Scarver ordered Steve Lohman to lay face down on the floor at gunpoint as he demanded money from John Fian. Mr. Fian opened up his wallet and showed him everything he had, which amounted to $15. At that point, Scarver shot Steve Lohman in the head as he lay defenseless on the ground. He said, Now do you think I'm kidding? I need more money. Steve Lohman was killed instantly. But that didn't stop Scarver. This is still not enough, he told Fian as he shot Steve Lohman two more times and demanded a check in the amount of $3,000 and all of Fian's credit cards. Fian handed over the cards and started to write the check out to Scarver, and as he did, Scarver shot Steve Lohman in the head again. After writing the check, John Fian was able to make a run for it out of the office and into the street. And as he did, Scarver fired a shot at him, but thankfully missed. Christopher Scarver took off with the $15, the check, and credit cards in his hand. Of course, 911 was called and officers responded. 27-year-old Steve Lohman was pronounced dead at the scene, and John Fian was shaken up but physically unharmed. Officers apprehended 20-year-old Christopher Scarver a few hours later as he sat out on the stoop of his girlfriend's apartment building. Stashed in his pockets, police found the check, the credit cards, and the murder weapon, a 25 caliber semi-automatic pistol. As he was arrested, he told the officers he had planned to turn himself in because he knew he had done wrong. 
Christopher Scarver was charged in Steve Lohman's murder and entered a plea of not guilty by reason of insanity. If you're confused how we went from Scarver telling officers at the scene that he knew he had done wrong to entering a plea of criminal insanity, which according to Cornell Law is literally defined as a mental defect or disease that makes it impossible for a defendant to understand their actions are wrong, welcome to the club. At trial, jurors were walked through the events of June 1st, 1990 none of which the defense really challenged due to the physical evidence and the fact that it could be countered by survivor John Fian. The real battle came down to Scarver's mental capacity to be held accountable for the crime. According to Deseret News, a court-appointed psychiatrist that examined Scarver testified that Christopher Scarver had told him that a month after being fired from his job, he started hearing voices. Scarver told the psychiatrist of the voices, quote, they were of men and women, high-pitched voices. The reason I did it is because the voices told me that he had done me wrong, that I will receive no harm, and that I will still be the Son of God. I'm the Chosen One. And further, Scarver told him that he believed he was the Son of God because his name was Chris, his mother's name was Mary, and he worked as a carpenter. But that wasn't the only story Scarver told. In another interview, he claimed he killed Steve Lohman because he was angry and wanted his job back. At that time, he made no mention of the voices or being the son of God. And according to the Telegraph Forum, that wasn't even the last story. A psychologist at the state mental institution had examined Scarver during pretrial proceedings to determine his mental competency. The psychologist wrote in his report that, quote, Scarver has framed his legal situation as being about his racial heritage to the exclusion of what he is charged with, meaning that Scarver believed he had not gotten the job due to racial discrimination. And this caused a deep rage because throughout his life, he felt that he had been discriminated against by white people and not getting hired at the Conservation Corps was just another example of that. The psychologist further noted that Scarver had shown hostility toward white staff members and viewed African-American staff working at the facility as, quote, traitors. Experts for the prosecution testified that while Scarver appeared to suffer from mental health issues, they likely had been brought on by heavy substance abuse, and further, his issues didn't rise to the level of criminal insanity. Of course, the defense argued that they did. But the jury rejected Christopher Scarver's insanity plea and on March 24, 1992, he was convicted of murdering Steve Lohman. Members of the jury would later speak to the Milwaukee Journal and state that they were swayed to convict Scarver by the testimony of the psychiatrist, stating that Christopher Scarver's delusions and the voices were likely brought on by his heavy use of drugs and alcohol, and they believed he had the mental capacity to know right from wrong. Scarver was later sentenced to life in prison plus 20 years with the possibility of parole after serving roughly 50 years. But that wouldn't be the end of Scarver's crimes, and soon Christopher Scarver would injure several others and commit two more murders. According to the Wisconsin State Journal, in early July 1992, roughly four months after his conviction, Scarver fashioned a homemade weapon out of a 14-inch board with nails sticking out of one side, which he wrapped in a sock. 
while in the dining room of Dodge Correctional Institution, out of nowhere, Scarver whipped out the board and attacked several correctional officers. According to court documents, Scarver struck five officers in the head with a makeshift weapon. All five suffered multiple cuts and bruises, and one officer had a sprained knee. They were transported to the hospital for treatment. Shortly after this incident, Scarver was sent to Columbia Correctional Institution in Portage, Wisconsin. This was the first of many transfers for Christopher Scarver. According to court documents, in December of 1992, Scarver set himself on fire inside of his cell. He was taken to a nearby hospital, treated for burns, and made a full recovery. But it wasn't Scarver's last attempt at self-harm. In May of 1993, he cut his own wrist with a razor blade. He was found in his cell in a puddle of blood. In two other instances, Scarver hid medication that he was prescribed daily until he had enough of the medication to overdose. Scarver was transferred from Columbia Correctional to the Wisconsin Resource Center, which is a prison in Oshkosh, Wisconsin, that specializes in mental health services for state prisoners. At the Wisconsin Resource Center, officers discovered that Scarver had allegedly devised a detailed plan to rape a female staff member and then escape with hostages by driving a garbage truck through a fence. Because of this, he was returned to Columbia Correctional Institution, which was a maximum security prison or supermax as they are commonly known. It was at this facility on November 28, 1994, that Christopher Scarver attacked two fellow inmates after they were left unsupervised for 20 minutes to clean the prison's recreation area. According to Deseret News, Scarver concealed a 20-inch, 5-pound steel bar from a sit-up machine in his pants leg while the other prisoners cleaned. He found one inmate alone cleaning a bathroom in the gym. He proceeded to bash his head in, striking him twice with the steel bar. That inmate was serial killer Jeffrey Dahmer. He then went to a nearby shower room and attacked another inmate, beating him in the head with the bar as well. That inmate was convicted killer Jesse Anderson. According to the Chicago Tribune, in 1992, Anderson brutally murdered his wife, Barbara, after taking her to dinner and a movie at Milwaukee's Northridge Mall. Anderson stabbed Barbara 21 times in the face and head in the mall parking lot. He then turned the knife on himself and superficially stabbed his own chest four times. Jesse Anderson claimed he and his wife were assaulted by two young black men who he said left behind an L.A. Clippers cap and a red-handled fishing knife. Of course, there was zero truth to this claim. Barbara clung to life at a nearby hospital but died from her injuries two days later. Anderson was arrested shortly after a young man identified him as the man to whom he had sold his L.A. Clippers cap on the very same day as the attack. And further, a store clerk identified Anderson as the customer who had recently purchased a red-handled fishing knife just like the one found at the scene. A red-handled fishing knife that was only sold at one store in Milwaukee. 
Anderson was later convicted of his wife's murder and sentenced to life in prison. Back to Christopher Scarver. After the attacks, he returned the bar to the gym and went back to his cell. When an officer asked him why he was back at his cell early, he replied, God told me to do it. You will hear about it on the 6 o'clock news. Jesse Anderson and Jeffrey Dahmer are dead. Scarver initially pled not guilty by reason of insanity yet again. According to the Associated Press, in May of 1995, Scarver changed his not guilty plea to no contest in exchange for a transfer from state prison to federal custody to serve out his now three life sentences. Throughout the years, Christopher Scarver's account of why he killed Dahmer and Anderson have changed. Initially, he said God told him to do it. At another point, he claimed he was provoked after one of the two poked him in the back while he was refilling a mop bucket. Scarver said he didn't know which of the two had done it, so he killed them both. According to the Huffington Post, in 2012, Christopher Scarver and his rep, yes, this convicted killer had a rep. Anyhow, Scarver's rep reached out to multiple big-name publishers on his behalf and shopped a tell-all book deal, claiming Scarver would reveal all the details surrounding the Dahmer killing, including Dahmer's last words and why he had really killed the two inmates. However, Scarver never secured that deal. And as far as Dahmer's last words went, Scarver initially reported that Dahmer had no last words. Again, the story took on a new life and narrative in 2015 when Scarver sat down for an interview with the New York Post. He repeated the story about the mop bucket, stating, I turned around and Dahmer and Jesse were kind of laughing under their breath. I looked right into their eyes and I couldn't tell which had done it. This enraged him. Not to mention the fact that he already hated Jeffrey Dahmer and Jesse Anderson. I mean, I think we all hate Dahmer and likely for the same reasons. But why did Christopher Scarver detest Jesse Anderson? Scarver claimed that Jesse Anderson had defaced a painting of Martin Luther King in the prison's art room by placing a red dot of paint to appear as a bloodstain, seemingly mocking the assassination of an American icon. For the love of all that is holy, can we please leave the great reverend out of this one? The fact that Anderson defaced a painting of MLK and had initially blamed two African-American males for his crime, coupled with the fact that Jeffrey Dahmer targeted minorities, and some of Scarver's previous statements about being discriminated against, caused many to speculate that the killing of the two inmates was racially motivated. But as Scarver further detailed the killings in that New York Post interview, that doesn't seem to be the case. After describing the alleged incident with Anderson and the painting, Scarver went on to detail the events leading up to the killings. Scarver recalled that while he had never personally interacted with Jeffrey Dahmer prior to November 28th, he had kept a newspaper article detailing Dahmer's crimes in his pocket. Scarver said he had watched Jeffrey Dahmer from afar and claimed that Dahmer taunted other prisoners and even prison staff joking about cannibalism. 
going so far as to make severed limbs out of prison food and drizzling ketchup on the food to appear as blood. Scarver stated, He crossed the line with some people, prisoners, prison staff. Some people who are in prison are repentant, but he was not one of them. Scarver went on to say that on November 28th, he was pushed over the edge when one of the two poked him in the back. As his rage built, he confronted Dahmer with a newspaper clipping he had been carrying. He said, I asked him if he did those things because I was fiercely disgusted. He was shocked. Yes, he was. He started looking for the door pretty quickly. I blocked him. He further stated, he ended up dead. I put his head down. Scarver then tracked Anderson down in the locker room. He said of the attack, pretty much the same thing happened. He got his head put out. And further, he believed it was no accident that he ended up alone with Dahmer, since prison officials knew he hated the serial killer and they wanted him dead. Prison officials disputed the claim that Dahmer was intentionally left alone with Scarver in order for him to be killed. However, Scarver's attack wasn't the first attempt by an inmate on Dahmer's life. According to the Orlando Sentinel, he had been attacked four months prior by another inmate at a church service. The inmate attempted to slit the serial killer's throat, but the shank he had made fell apart, and Jeffrey Dahmer was only slightly injured. According to TMJ News 4, weeks after the first attack, another inmate had come forward and warned prison officials that Christopher Scarver was planning an attack on Jeffrey Dahmer. The inmate stated to officials, That old boy Dahmer is gonna get it again. But as we all know, that tip was ignored. The three inmates were left unsupervised to clean the rec room, and the rest is history. After the interview with the New York Post, Scarver again shopped a book deal. But when he failed to secure one, he began self-publishing his own books of poetry. In 2001, he and other inmates filed a class action lawsuit claiming their mental health was not being adequately addressed. You see, according to court documents, over the years and the many prison transfers, Christopher Scarver has been treated by various psychologists and psychiatrists and has been diagnosed with multiple mental health disorders, including paranoid schizophrenia, depression, psychosis, and schizoaffective disorder. But there have been major discrepancies in these diagnoses. Many of the mental health professionals that have evaluated Scarver have indicated that they believe Christopher Scarver is malingering or exaggerating or faking in respect to some and possibly all of his mental health symptoms. Therefore, finding the right treatment plan as well as the best institution for Scarver's illnesses or lack thereof has been a challenge for prison officials. Wisconsin prison authorities didn't think they had a secure enough prison to protect inmates and staff from him and he had continued to bounce around from federal to state custody. Scarver claimed in the lawsuit that conditions at some of these placements, especially the Supermax facility, made his mental health worse, and he sought financial repayment for what he considered inadequate care and cruel and unusual punishment. The financial aspect of the lawsuit was dismissed. 
But according to the Telegraph, the judge ordered he and three dozen other inmates be transferred to the Centennial Correctional Facility in Colorado, a facility that offers programs for mentally ill inmates. And that is where Christopher Scarver remains today, serving out three consecutive life sentences and then some. Before Christopher Scarver gained notoriety for bludgeoning Jesse Anderson and Jeffrey Dahmer to death, he murdered a completely innocent man in cold blood and attempted to murder another. While no one is grieving the loss of the monsters that are Jeffrey Dahmer or Jesse Anderson, there are many whose lives were deeply affected by the tragic loss of Steve Lohman. While some celebrate Christopher Scarver as some type of vigilante hero, for the family and friends of Steve Lohman, John Fian, the correctional officers Scarver brutally attacked, and the female staff member he planned to rape, Christopher Scarver is definitely not a hero or anything of the kind that some have portrayed him to be. Steve Lohman was just 27 years old when his life was brutally ripped away at the hands of Christopher Scarver. And for what? $15 and a check Scarver never got to cash? Steve Lohman was a son, brother, and friend who served his community through the Wisconsin Conservation Corps. According to the Boscobel Dial, Steve had spent the three weeks before his murder directing a library renovation project in the village of Gays Mills, Wisconsin, a village that back then only had a reported population of around 400 people and a library that needed a complete overhaul. That library contained the only free access to books and videos for the children of that community a community that both Steve Lohman and John Fian were proud to serve. With all the hype currently surrounding the absolute shit stain on the trousers of humanity, that is Jeffrey Dahmer. May we never forget that the victims of all three of these convicted murderers were real people with real lives and real families. As always, you can find more information on this case or any of the others I've covered on my Instagram at least underscore of these or my Facebook at least of these podcast. New episodes drop every Thursday. I'll be bringing you an all new case next week and I can't wait. Make sure you hit that subscribe button if you haven't already so you don't miss it. You can finally get all your episodes ad-free just the way you like them for just $2 a month. And as a member of Patreon, you'll be the first to be notified when new tiers will be launched with exclusive episodes and a few bonus surprises. Head on over to patreon.com slash least of these to support the show today. Thank you for listening. Thank you for caring. If you know something, say something. And until next time, be good to each other.